Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins of Empire. Did you know the complete series, or at least as much as I've written thus far, is available on Amazon? It's true. You can go there and pick up a copy and support this little project for as little as $3. Or if you don't want to support The Mighty Zon, you can also find us on Barnes & Noble. Grab a copy, follow along, or just keep it on the shelf, and feel good knowing you help support what is probably going to go down in history as the finest pulp sci-fi adventure series ever written. Just saying. Listening to Ruins of Empire, Templum Veneris, Book Two of the Ruins of Empire Project, a serial podcast novel by Jeremy L. Jones, read by the author. Chapter 28 When the bombardment ended, corporation troops swept across the nation. They encountered, according to reports, little to no resistance. That was not unexpected as the goal of the bombardment in the first place was to crush the Brazilian resistance that had stymied troops since the American War. Documents from the time suggest that the generals expected a wounded, starving population ready to be embraced by the newly formed Global Corporation. What they found, as one soldier described, was altogether different. We entered Ladriana today. Like every other city, there is nothing here but ruins and corpses. We are told that there is danger around every corner, looking in every dark space and hiding in every dense patch of foliage. But there is nothing alive here. The survivors, if there were any, long ago left this place for the scavengers and the spirits of the dead. From The Fall, The Decline and Failure of 21st Century Civilization by Martin Raff. Vega walked at the head of a division of Corsario up the steep mountain path towards Cytheria's Modesto Wall. He had commanded a few poorly trained ragtag militias in his lifetime, but nothing like this. Only about half his men carried the Lanzafogo, and less than half of the remaining carried flaming torches. That left more than a quarter without any weapon besides their hands and teeth. The only armor they had were strips of cloth worn around the waist. The only equipment small bags of metal balls and powder to reload their proto-guns. When they first set out, Vago briefly tried to organize them into military formation, but his charges resisted the notion. They weren't marching into battle so much as arriving, under-equipped and untrained no less. It was amazing they fared as well as they did against the Cytherian army. Still, the mood among them was pure excitement. Vago had, of course, never been on a Corsario raid, but he imagined them to be grim affairs, going up against a nearly unstoppable enemy just to get enough food to survive didn't seem like a cause worth celebrating. Now, they walked with a confident and purposeful gait and looked at the path ahead with the self-assured intensity of a warrior ready to fight a righteous battle. And maybe, for the first time in their lives, victory appeared to be a possibility. Vago smiled to himself. Things were going to change for these people now, and, by the fire in their eyes, they knew it. Once Vago spied the ragged heaps of the Modesto Wall through the perpetual haze, he raised his hand to halt his troops. He pulled the radio transmitter that he clipped to his belt. Althea, Group 1 in position. Althea radioed back. Roger, Vago. The last of the other groups just checked in. Attack whenever you're ready, and be careful. Don't worry about me, he replied. 
We'll be drinking the last of the Arenjas Hydromel before the sun sets. Vega replaced the radio on his belt and ordered his men to advance. The Casario moved forward at a speed somewhere between a jog and a full sprint and cleared the distance to the crumbling wall in a matter of minutes. Vega called for a halt and climbed to the top to survey the area, expecting a wide open field of barley with workers tending to the crops. Instead, there was a division of Scytherian soldiers on patrol through the waist-high grass. It was only about half the men that normally went on patrol with Gabriel, but there wasn't supposed to be any at all. Vago fell back behind the wall and cursed. He had hoped to get close to the city and catch a patrol off guard. Still, this situation had an advantage as well. One division would be tied up in battle, and more would soon be on their way. Vago ordered his men to climb over the wall and form a line on the other side. Seeing the raiders encroaching on their land, the Scytherian warriors formed a wall with their shields, ready to deflect the first volley of projectiles. Vago almost laughed as the last raiders got into position. The way both sides moved, it was as if the battle had been choreographed ahead of time. It reminded Vago of childhood games, where one group of boys always got to be the good guys and win against the bad guys. Those boys hated it when Vago played. The bad guys always won. The raiders lined up and aimed their lancefogo. Vago shouted, Dispa! And the air filled with the boom of exploding powder, followed by the metallic clang as the bullets impacted the shields and armor. A few soldiers fell to the ground, but Moe shrugged it off and started to advance. It was time for the new element. Vago pulled his guns from their holsters and aimed at the advancing line of Scytherians. His first shot hit a soldier right in the head, and he fell in a cloud of pink mist. The second shot hit another Scytherian just below his breastplate, who fell screaming until a third bullet just below the neck silenced him. Vago's surprise attack had its desired effect almost instantaneously. Some of the Scytherian soldiers stopped charging and raised their shields in defense. Others, either absorbed in the rush of battle or sheer idiot bravery, continued to charge forward. Vago picked these off with ease, contributing to the panic rising in the enemy ranks. By the time Vago emptied his last clip, the Scytherian line was in complete disarray, and the raiders were reloaded and ready to fire. Vago ducked behind the line and again shouted, Dispa! This time, without the combined protection of a shield wall, over half of the Scytherian soldiers fell. Vago dropped the clips from his guns, slammed two more in their place, and called for a charge. The Casario ran with the barbed tips of their lanzafogo raised. They yelled battle cries as they slammed into the remains of the small Scytherian division. Vago hung back, picking off a few soldiers with his guns, but he only got a few shots off before the battle was over. The Scytherians, now outnumbered and scattered, turned to retreat after a few short seconds. The Casario raised a cheer as the last of the survivors ran away, tripping through the high stalks of barley. And that was it. It was not the end of the war, far from it. It was the measly first blow in a fight that was going to last several rounds, but it was a blow that had bloodied the nose of their enemy. The raider army was already beginning their jubilant celebration, waving their weapons in the air and shouting taunts to the last of the retreating soldiers. Vago's first instinct was to bring the men to attention and restore discipline. But as he got close to the celebrations, he decided to let them continue. 
These men had probably never seen a military victory from this side. Besides, if the cheers of triumph brought more Scytherians down on them, they could tie them up in battle while the other Corsario groups took the city. He would let them have their celebration for a little while. Vago made his way through the crowd, clasping a few on the shoulder as he walked. Here, in the middle of the celebration, he felt the same sense of belonging he previously felt at the Scytherian Salah. It was a welcome comfort after the rush of battle, but it didn't last long. Something on a nearby hill caught his eye, and he moved back out of the crowd for a better look. A lone Scytherian, holding his crested helmet under his arm, watched the celebration. It took a moment to recognize Gabriel. He was too far away to be sure, but Vega swore he saw a smile on his face. He started to wonder how long Gabriel had been there, and if he had seen the battle. Before he could come to any kind of conclusion, Gabriel's order, Avancar! echoed across the field, and a platoon of soldiers started cresting the hill. Just once, Vago thought to himself, loading his weapons again. Just once. Why can't something that seems easy actually be easy? He turned back to his men and yelled, More of them! Form up! Form up! The Casario scattered and formed a line facing the oncoming Scytherian army. They raised their lance fogo and waited for the soldiers to march into range. Vago drew his guns. It was like a damn script. Once the Scytherians were close enough, Vago ordered his soldiers to fire. Again, there was an ear-splitting explosion and a volley of shots. And again, the attack had almost no effect. Vago popped up and got ready to hold the Scytherian charge while the Casario reloaded. Except the charge didn't come. The Scytherians advanced with their shields up and spears forward like a moving spiked wall. Vago aimed at a soldier's head and fired. It was a kill shot, but as soon as the soldier fell, another stepped forward to take his place in the shield wall. Vago fired again with his other gun. The shot was poorly aimed, and it ricocheted off a soldier's shield. He fired again, wounding one above the hip. That soldier disappeared into the line and was replaced with another. Vago fired again and again, each shot getting more erratic and desperate, but even the few that he killed or wounded didn't have any effect. They weren't breaking like they did before. He remembered Gabriel watching from the hill with that sly little smile. He had been watching the entire time and instructed his troops. In the time it took for Vago to rewrite the script for Scytherian warfare, Gabriel had already added his own edits. The Scytherian line crept forward slowly enough that the Casario were able to reload for another shot, but this attack, like the last, did almost nothing to the advancing line. A couple fell, but the holes filled in without a single misstep. It was like firing guns into a tidal wave of molasses. Before the Casario could reload, the Scytherians were close enough for the melee to begin. Vago's men got to their feet and charged. They used their barbed bayonets to stab into the line. They used the butt of their guns as bludgeoning weapons. Those carrying flaming torches swung them at the shield wall, but it was all a meager attempt. Even with Vago picking off a few soldiers when he could, his army couldn't make a dent in the lime. It was time to call a retreat. Vago reloaded and gave the order, Rakoa! His men turned to run, and Vago unloaded a spray of bullets to buy them a few precious seconds before charging back to the wall with his men. He pulled the radio from his belt and yelled in it, Group 1, calling a retreat. Althea answered back, Okay, Vago, get yourself out of there. Grupo 2, 
Ataka! Vago ran until the wounds on his chest stung and his legs felt like they were burning from the inside out. He scrambled over the wall and, for the first time since he gave the order, looked back. The Scytherian soldiers didn't give chase, but stayed in their line, moving toward the wall at the same slow, steady pace. As the last of his surviving force made it over, he smiled to himself. His division had taken heavy losses, but they had managed to draw a formidable enemy from the field. Gabriel might have been ready to deal with Vago's tactics, but there was no way he was prepared for what was about to come. But as he watched the Scytherians move forward, unease crept over him. There was something wrong, something besides the fact that Gabriel seemed to know exactly when and how he would attack. He listened to the wind through the barley and the footsteps of the Scytherians moving toward him and realized what it was. There were no alarm bells, no indication that Scytheria was moving any more divisions to deal with Vago and his Corsario. He unclipped his radio and listened to the progress of the other divisions. Alexandra, the leader of the second group, called for a charge. Vago risked another look over the wall. Gabriel still advanced at the same steady pace. And then, just a few minutes after Alexandra called for the attack, he ordered a retreat. Grupo tres, Yalothea, ataca! Vago poked his head up again. The Scytherian line stopped a few hundred feet from the wall. They didn't look interested in pursuing or ending the attack. They just stood and made it clear that they weren't moving while Vago's force was nearby. The leader of the third group called for a retreat. Althea ordered the fourth group into the field. This wasn't right, Vago realized. Every division was running headlong into Scytherian forces and retreating far too quickly. By now, the overextended and completely unprepared Scytherian army should be breaking. Casario divisions should be marching into what would seem like a completely undefended city. They would encounter resistance eventually, but not this fast and not this hard. It was clear the Scytherians knew exactly where and how the raiders were going to attack. Vago looked back at Gabriel's men, standing at attention in the field. The captain of the guard was in front of the line now, and he was close enough that Vago made eye contact with him. He could see the serene, knowing smile on his face clearly. It was the look of a man who already knew the outcome of the battle, but was just waiting for the defeat to make it official. The fourth group called for a retreat. Grupo Senko, Althea started somewhat desperately. Vago raised the radio. Wait, wait. Espada. Neo ataca. Althea, hold the attacks. What is it, Vago? What's wrong? replied Althea in a slightly panicked voice. It's a bus. Fernaco Termino. Rakua. Pull back. They knew we were coming. Isra sat with her back to a damp stone wall, holding her hand out in front of her face. She brought it closer and further away to get a sense of a world with no depth perception. She sighed and let her head rest against the wall. Not that it mattered. Best case scenario at this point, the Arenha would kill her quickly. Worst case, she imagined a life as just another slave in the brown robes, just another anonymous occulto. Even if she could escape, there was nowhere to go. On Venus, there was only Cytheria. She imagined, when word of this disaster got out, nobody from Earth would be in a hurry to return here. Stone walls formed three sides of her small cell, with a barred wall and door forming the fourth. 
After some length of time, another occulto approached her door and unlocked it. Isra pulled herself in tighter and pressed hard against the cool stonework. The occulto opened the door, carrying a dull gray metal tray sitting on top of a folded brown robe. On top of that, there were several strips of white linen as well as an unidentified jar that Isra eyed with suspicion. The servant closed the door most of the way, although not enough to lock. He walked to Isra, knelt in front of her, and placed the robes and the tray on the ground next to him. Once he did, he pulled his hood off. For the briefest of moments, Isra felt a spark of hope. She recognized the same man that had passed her the note in the Salah before she went to see the Arenha. Then she remembered the truth about Cytheria. Nothing moved without the Arenha's knowledge. Nobody acted without her permission. The occulto took the jar from the tray and reached out to touch her face. Isra turned her head away. I am not here to harm you. I must examine the wound, he said in a soothing tone. Isra swallowed hard, but let him undo the bandage around her head that covered her eye. He didn't react to her injury in any way. There was no disgust or shock or even curiosity. Of course, he had suffered the same at the hands of the Arenha before, so it made sense. He opened the jar and dipped his fingers in the greenish paste and reached out to spread it over her injured eye. She flinched and winced when he made contact, but the balm, whatever it was, had a numbing, cooling effect that brought some measure of relief. I am sorry, he whispered. Isra couldn't stop a tear forming in her good eye, especially now that she realized she had a good eye. Are you part of the Arena's plan, too? she whispered back. The man took another bit of balm from the jar and reached out to apply it to Isra's eye. Would you believe me if I said no? I would not. Not anymore. Many years ago, the man said, spreading more of the medicine over the burn, myself and a few other soldiers gathered together. Among them was a squad leader who spoke of a time when weak leaders were overthrown and replaced. He convinced us that the Arena's time was ending and that it was time for another, one who would stop the Casario raids and bring new life to Cytheria. Those of us that joined him would live as kings in the new golden age. It was only later, after my eye was taken and I wore the brown, that I learned that the Arenha had sent the man to discover traitors inside her army. Why are you telling me this? whispered Isra. The occulto replaced the lid on the jar and took a fresh bandage from the tray. It was the first time the Arenha resorted to such an act, the first time she saw fit to remove a warrior's ability by taking his eye. There were five of us that day. She set the same trap some years later and found fifteen. When she attempted the ploy once more, she found thirty-six. The Arena is losing control, she whispered. She flinched as he applied the bandage. Fear can only do so much. It can accomplish more than you think, whispered the occulto, tying the bandage securely to Isra's head. Those who would consider major acts of rebellion are found and punished. This discourages others who would do the same. It is why Isabel remains Arena. He picked up the metal tray and exited the cell, pulling the barred door closed behind him until it shut and locked with a loud metallic clank. He whispered one more time at Isra through the bars, but those who would commit small acts of rebellion are not deterred. They are emboldened, especially when they have nothing left to take. With that, he turned and rushed away. 
Isra thought about the man's cryptic message. After a while, she crept forward to the brown robe that he had left behind in the cell. It was, as she assumed, one of the brown occulto robes, one that she would presumably be forced to wear for the rest of her time on Venus, which, thankfully, would not be much longer, Isra noted, before any passing guard or prisoner caught a glimpse of what the man left for her. She reached forward and snatched the key from the ground. You have been listening to The Ruins of Empire, Templum Veneris, the second book of The Ruins of Empire Project. The Ruins of Empire podcast was written by Jeremy L. Jones and produced by Sean Vincent. Cover art was by Nick Martin. Music was Predator by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com, licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 license. City of Geeks, independent new media produced in Idaho.